Well, according to the genius storyteller, uh, a novelist by the name of Kurt Vonnegut, in a wonderful old lecture you can see posted on full on YouTube, as I have several times, uh, you can chart any story in the world on this graph on the screen. Let me explain it to you. We're going to start with this, uh, this vertical uh, GI graph here. Okay, you got good fortune up here, ill fortune down here. So death, poverty, miser misery, miserliness down here, and then up here you're running marathons, you hit the lottery, everything's great. Here in the middle is most of us. Okay, so that's a GI axis. The next axis you get is uh, B, E. Beginning, and you guessed it, entropy. Okay, so that's uh, how he describes it. And, and he says you can chart any storyline like this. So he says, here's one of the most popular stories in our culture. All right, let's go to the next one. This one is not copyrighted. He says it's found in many forms. And he calls this story man in a hole, though he quickly hastens to let you know it needn't be a man, about a man or a hole. Okay, but here's how it goes. Notice that it starts up here because we don't usually like to think about anything too depressing on a Sunday morning. So it starts up here. That's nice and encouraging. And uh, what happens? Oh, no, we're going around. Oh, boy, we fall into a hole and we get out of it. Notice, too, that uh, it ends up just a little bit higher than here because there's a sense of progress for us. Isn't that nice? This story will sell a whole lot. Now, the next one, though, the next one is, a, is an old masterpiece. Okay, and uh, the next one, uh, we find a person who's beginning... Uh, way down here. Let's go to the next one, CJ. The next one, we have this, this young person, despondent, ending way up down here. Now, who is she? Well, she's a teenage girl, and her mother has died. So why wouldn't she be low? And to make matters worse, her, her dad goes off, and he gets married to this terrible battle axe with these two mean uh, daughters. Maybe you've heard this one. And uh, she's just living this sort of miserable life. But thankfully, there is to be a ball that is held at the palace. The only problem is she can't go, but to make matters worse, she has to help her stepsisters and her dreadful stepmother get ready for the ball. So it, it's as low as low can be. Suddenly, though, fairy godmother shows up, gives her new shoes, a carriage, a dress, and she goes to the ball. She's the belle of the ball. She's dancing with the prince. She's so heavily made up, in fact, that her own relatives cannot recognize her. So uh, she's having this beautiful night, but then all of a sudden, as promised, Bong, bong, bong. Midnight strikes, oh my goodness, all the way down to here. Now, is she as low as before? Of course not. Why? Because she always has the memory of that dance. <laughs> See? So then she's going along, though, she's going along, plodding along. Suddenly, the slipper fits. Prince shows up happily ever after, okay? So this is just a showing of this very helpful tool. Many of our stories, the stories we read, the stories we consume, the stories of our days and lives can be charted along uh, this graph. So uh, good morning. Welcome to North Fresno Church. My name is Brad Isaac. And today uh, in our series, Jesus Essentials, where essentially what we are doing um, for the next few weeks is we are just looking at trying to figure out what are the essential, core, foundational things that we want to know about the Jesus who stands at the center of our faith. What I am going to do today is I am simply going to try and chart the Jesus story onto Vonnegut's graph. That's all we're going to do this morning. It's going to be really simple, and uh, I tried to do it actually, and I, I did run into some problems, so I, I decided that we would actually just rely on the Bible. So, in fact, that the, the scripture that we're going to use... <laughs> To, to chart this trajectory, you've already heard read for you. But um, 
even though you can already see exactly how the Jesus story charts, I figured I would just show you kind of the work on scratch paper. So I think all of you today, I, I swore off geometry, but here we are. I think all of you should have received some graphing paper as you came in in your bulletins. Uh, we're just going to chart this out. I'm just kidding. Don't look for it. Some of you are actually looking down for it. There's no graphing paper. Just, there's no graphing paper. It's like, oh my goodness, Marilyn didn't. No, there's no graphing paper. But uh, I wasn't nearly that prepared. No, we're going to chart this out, though, this morning. So I figured uh, if we're going to chart out the Jesus story, I, I'd better come up with a title. You know, Vonnegut has Man and Hole in Cinderella, so I, I should probably title it. And so I was surveying what the early church had said about the person of Jesus. We're trying to summarize quite a bit of information. And so I, I, I came down to this one. <clears throat> Jesus is Lord. Okay? That is the, that is the summary of our, our graph. And... Um, it's quite pithy. Uh, I hope it catches on, but that's sort of where, where uh, we're going to be charting today. And as soon as I sort of decided I was going to talk about this, it reminded me that one time I had seen these very words, Jesus is Lord, scrawled amidst this graffiti-covered stall of a truck stop bathroom. There amidst all of this crazy stuff in this particular truck stop bathroom, someone had taken time to write, Jesus is Lord. Now, I bring this up, this true story, I bring this up not necessarily to encourage the defacement of private property, neither here nor there on that, but mostly because that title written in that crowded space between the various declarations of love, so-and-so, heart, so-and-so, and political affiliations and offers of all sorts of different things, um, it reminded me and struck me of how surprising and confused and, uh, frankly, a little strange, it must have seemed to hear the words, Jesus is Lord, in its original ancient context. Because as the New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, explains, everyone in the ancient world would have known the correct fill-in-the-blank answer to blank is Lord. It was obvious. It was Caesar. This was the de facto assumption in the ancient world. Rome had proven over and over on the battlefields, through their propaganda, through their civilizations, kind of um, spread, that of course Caesar was Lord. Caesar is the bringer of justice. Caesar is the one in whom we trust. Caesar is Savior. Caesar is Lord. And so to say that Jesus is Lord, as the early church did, and as this anonymous holy traveler had in Sharpie uh, in that bathroom, was not only to make a spiritual assertion, but a political assertion and a pledge of allegiance. In the Roman Empire, to say Jesus is Lord meant to reject the assumption that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is not. So how's that translate, though, into a Western democracy like the one in which we find ourselves uh, with strong individualistic tendencies? Where the central authority is not an emperor presiding over an empire, but theoretically is who? Well, it's like, theoretically, it is us. It's, it's us. So if we were to try and figure this out, and maybe this is a sermon for another day, but if we were to try and figure out what is the punch of this saying for our time, it's not necessarily for us to say, okay, Jesus is Lord, meaning Caesar was not back then, but it's to say something like, if Jesus is Lord, then we are not. I am not. There is something that has a greater sense of control and authority and um, can serve as a directing force in my life beyond my own self. At any rate, that's the title for my graph here. 
Though to uh, immediately digress as we get back to my graph, uh, and before I make a single mark, I should tell you that this was a, rattler, a rather tall task to try and chart this. See, I figured at first, I'm like, it's going to be really easy. You just start over here on the, the beginning, obviously, but then I'm like, well, Jesus is the alpha and omega. So how exactly do you chart that? But then I said, okay, and how exactly, next slide, do we chart that uh, Jesus is, um, is somewhere on this sort of GI axis? And, and we're going to get to that, and I wasn't sure exactly how to do that, because where exactly... On these plot points, do you describe the person who, though he is claimed as Lord of the Sabbath, the day of rest, somehow did enough work that we're told all the books and all the pages in the world couldn't describe the work that he did? How in the world do you go about and try and describe how he touched the untouchables and how he spoke good news to the poor and broke the yokes of the oppressed? How do you sort of chart the curve on the graph where Jesus meets a woman whose back is hunched over from oppression and is curved, and he straightens her up and raises her to dignity? Where exactly do you chart that? Or how he delivered the demoniac? How do you begin to even chart how and what Jesus did? And so it's this sort of uh, big task that we're doing, but that's why I need help from uh, the Apostle Paul, and that's where we're going to go. So, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, as has been read for us, we find uh, the early Jesus follower Paul breaks into poetry. He's writing a letter, but he breaks into poetry, which is a nasty habit that some of us have. But he breaks into poetry anyways, and he's trying to describe the trajectory of Christ's life and lordship. Christ's life and lordship. And uh, in this larger letter, what Paul is doing is he's trying to encourage his friends in this particular church, people not all that different from you and I with our own dysfunctions. He's trying to encourage his friends in this church to be united together in their faith. That's his goal. And to that end, at the very heart of his letter, he includes several stanzas of what appears to be an ancient hymn. And whether he wrote it or he's quoting an even earlier Christian writer, what we have is an exceptionally early account of who Jesus was and what he did. And this is important for us to realize. Again, Paul believes that this poem, this hymn, has relevance not only for describing who Jesus is, but who we, as his associates and his apprentices and his followers and ambassadors, are to be. Again, this verse will be up on the screen. You've heard it read once already. This is what Paul says. This is his introductory comment. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start our, um, our poem here. Who, verse 6, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own Advantage, And again, this is, this is the part where I immediately have a difficult time putting Jesus on the graph yet again, uh, because I'm like, where do you put on the good fortune, ill fortune spectrum, the one who is the only begotten son of God, maker of heaven and earth, and therefore above all the fortunes and chances of this life? So he sort of explodes things, but thankfully, in, in the goodness and grace of God, he's going to appear on screen on our projector soon enough, don't worry. Here we go, verse 7. Not staying above everything forever, we get our first movement in the poem. Rather, he made himself nothing. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. As St. John put it rather famously, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The word meaning what? Meaning the eternal communication of the possibility of communion with God and the possibility of communion breaks into the world as a real distinct possibility, communicated to us in a way that we can understand personally. That's what's happening. This is the Christmas story, right? But not only does Jesus appear as human, arriving at a level we can understand, but watch this. He arrives on the scene as one who serves. By taking the very nature of a servant, by appearing as one who is insignificant, of lesser social status, he humbled himself. But it's not only, get this, that God appears in the flesh as a poor refugee child raised in a day laborer's house in some derided out in the middle of nowhere region, but further, that Jesus, full of the very life and light of God, so trusted the calling on his life that he became obedient unto the point of death. But it's not even just that he became obedient to the point of death. At this point, the author reaches the grand climax of this descending movement. At the rock bottom of existence itself, the scripture reminds us that Jesus' death, innocent and unmerited and premature and tragic as it is, is no ordinary death, but is even death on a cross. This is the, the trough, the depths to which Christ descends to us in love. And as the brilliant uh, writer Fleming Rutledge wants us to remind us, she, she time and time again in her work, and she's done incredible things on the cross, she, she reminds us that the cross in its original context is not a fashion accessory, it's not an instrument, it's not a, a sort of emoji that associates you with a faith commitment. The cross in its original context is, of course, this instrument of torture, and she picks up on this ancient phrase to kind of help us to see this and to remember it. She writes this, Crucifixion sent an unmistakable signal, which is what? That this person, meaning the crucified one, this person that you see before you is not fit to live, not even human, as the Romans put it, such a person was domnatio ad bestias, meaning condemned to the life of a beast. This is the power of this poem. The same figure who in verse 6 is this suprahuman figure, this supernatural figure above it all, by verse 8 has so descended that he is willing out of love for us to suffer a subhuman death. From supernatural creator to the one suffering a subhuman death. This is the depth to which God descends to us in Christ. This is the first half of the graph. And it is here, at this moment of catastrophe, that this ancient poem arrives at its climax with the turn of a simple phrase. The phrase literally is, and so. Many of our Bibles will translate it, therefore. Therefore. It's not over. The descent is final. There's no place to which God will not reach to pull us out. There's no depths of suffering that Christ has not exhausted. There's no dark corner or shadow that Christ has not himself descended into. And yet, and so, therefore, in light of all that Jesus did and endured, God the Father takes on the active role in agency. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. 
and gave him the name that is above every name. Exalted in this one um, word, it seems that what Paul does is he, he reminds us of at least two movements. First, that Easter story that, that Christ is raised back to life, the resurrection, and that Christ also is ascended into heaven. He uses this one term, exalted, to do it. You can go look through the pictures in our lobby. They'll explain the whole thing from resurrection all the way to ascension for you and spell it out more. But in broad strokes, Christ is exalted. And you know, the NBA playoffs are happening, and it always it always reminds me, uh, when I'm watching the NBA playoffs, that once you've really made it in the league, you can be known by just one name. You know, when you're just coming up, they'll say, you know, your first name and your last name. But you get good enough, and maybe your last name is good enough. So you have, you have Jokic, right? Or you have Embiid. But then if you get really, really good, you might be known by your initials. Right now, you have KD or AD. And if you know basketball, you know exactly who I'm talking about. You could just picture immediately who I'm talking about. Or if you get really, really, really good, you can be known by just your first name, Clay or Giannis, and not just because people don't want to last, mispronounce his last name, Antetokounmpo. But uh, you, you can just be known, or even the great ones, Braun, just part of his first name. And yet, as great as the great ones are, above every name, of all the titles, that he has, that are bestowed on him by the words of scripture and across languages and cultures, the greatest of all these is simply the name of Jesus. Jesus, the name above all names. And watch this. Paul continues, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is uh, an ancient way of saying, in every facet and level and dimension of reality, the seen and the unseen, the spiritual, the physical, the political, the social, the relational, in every area, Christ has the supremacy. The name of Jesus is the name at which every person and power and principality shall bend the knee in submission to the authority of Jesus, who alone is greater than our sin and our shame and our fear and our failures and the powers of darkness and death and the adversary. Continuing on. And every tongue, Paul says, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This on the screen, in broad strokes, is the story that encompasses all stories. The story that encompasses all stories, all suffering and all hopes, every rise and fall, triumph and failure of our human experience is brought in and is, is included in what Christ does for us, this incredible breadth and depth of the love of God for us. And what this does is it doesn't minimize our stories and experiences. What it actually does is it allows them to become meaningful. It doesn't discount our pain and loss, but it dignifies it in the grand drama of redemption to which we're called to participate. And this V-shaped trajectory, this simple shape, provides for us what the Bible contends is the true shape of greatness. In a society like ours that trains us to seek our own advantage, to gain a leg up on the competition, to claw our way to the top, to jockey for status. Jesus' life serves as a template for another way of being. 
Not replacing the lordship of Caesar at the top with another power-hungry despot with a different message. Not any version of Christianity that co-ops Christ's true glory with our ambitions for colonialist or imperialist or nationalistic ambitions that would just in the end see one group of people lord it over another. Far from it. No, what's a real winning mentality look like? Paul says a champion's mindset is this. It's not afraid of humility. It understands the strength of gentleness. It, it trusts that sometimes in putting ourselves under other people, God will in the end raise us to where we deserve to be and to be with him in his love. Downward mobility, Paul says, is the path to true glory. If you want to be promoted, you have to... Um, Go on this route with Jesus. Descent into self-sacrificial love is the path that ascends to honor. Service is crowned in glory. The fulfillment of our deepest desires that we all are constantly going after and trying to accumulate things and, and, um, and favors and do whatever we can to try and fill ourselves. The fulfillment of our deepest desires, according to this passage, lies in self-emptying love. And this is the incredible, head-scratching, hands-raised-in-question, paradoxical way of Jesus laid out in one shape. And remember that this is also a story that calls each of us to account because, again, recall, this hymn's inclusion in our Bibles appears there in the first place for the purpose of reminding people of the Jesus-y mindset that we are to embrace in relationship with one another. So let me close with a couple recent ways I've witnessed Jesus followers here in our city living into what we would consider an essential claim and understanding of this V-shaped trajectory of the Lordship of Christ. So over spring break, um, we took a group of high schoolers into various parts of the city of Fresno with the purpose of learning about and serving in our community which itself is sort of a fun uh, entryway into this upside-down pattern of thinking, and what do we do when we have extra time on our hands, and, and how do we use it? But one of my favorite parts of this week, apart from just being with the students themselves, was getting to be with those students and see them around some incredible leaders of partner organizations who, as a direct outworking of their Christian faith, precisely because they identify with the story of Jesus, have embraced a pattern of downward mobility with their finances and careers and uh, where they pay rent or choose to buy homes, a pattern of downward mobility by choosing to live in neglected neighborhoods of high concentrated poverty. And some of them, we're not going to show their pictures or anything, that's some of them about, but some of them who have chosen to take vows to live at the poverty line when their skills and expertise would allow them to take a much higher salary, to live at the poverty line in solidarity with their neighbors. To believe that somehow in choosing to move themselves in this way, um, that they are going to find uh, fulfillment. These are people and families who have set down roots in transitory areas where people generally move in with the intent to get out as soon as possible on month-to-month -month leases. But these people are there to recognize and to draw out and to build on the life and activity of God already there in those places. And there is a power, I need to tell you, and it's and just sort of this, it's, it's just a different atmosphere to be in the homes of these people. 
who are living in such a different way and yet are finding peace in it. And to be there with students and to feel, oh, there really are alternatives to the sort of um, life on autopilot decision-making that we often make in, in a society like ours. And seeing these lives patterned on humility and sacrifice and obedience to the way of Jesus gives me strength and inspiration and encouragement. But I also know that words do matter, okay? Our, our text today, after all, it's a poem, right? It's a, it's a powerful way of um, describing who Jesus is, as we heard in the, in the words of the great reverend before. And, and so part of the glory do Christ is that at the end of all time, we're told that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the part, this is part, Paul says, of the glory that is due Christ and is coming his way. But the cool part that I want to tell you about is that those confessions and acknowledgments of the goodness and centrality and lordship of Christ don't have to wait until far off into the hazy future. Sometimes we get to hear them in the present. So on uh, the Friday of Easter break, on Good Friday, uh, we were over at Youth for Christ Campus Life Center. And Youth for Christ, uh, they've got a fundraiser coming up. You should support what they're doing. You can talk to Aubrey. They're doing really good things right here at Hoover and Awani and right here in our community, and we support them. Uh, so we were over there, and we were introducing students to the work that, uh, that Youth for Christ does in our city. And uh, as part of what we were doing with this group of about 30 or so kids from a couple different churches is we were, we were telling them the good news story of Jesus and this V-shaped trajectory, and we were teaching them not only how to think about the story of God, but how to think about their own stories and to listen well to others. And so we're doing all this storytelling. And at the end of this training time, we tasked students by giving them 15 minutes where whether on their phones or on a, on a like notepad, they were to go off and they were to write their own faith story. You have 15 minutes, right? And, uh, or they, if, if faith wasn't a dominant motif, they could just write out their biography. And so they go off and they do this, and then we gathered them back together, and um, we knew that we were going to ask a couple of them if they would be willing to share in front of their peers and share. And so I had helped structure this time, and so I knew exactly what we had allotted time for. We had allotted time for, and we were hoping to get three students to share for about 15 minutes. And we had a couple of adults kind of primed, like, hey, look, look, if nobody goes, like, you go. We had a gift card for the first student who went. Uh, and so we're ready. We, we're looking for three students. There were three people, 15 minutes. But what we weren't ready for was the 15 students that shared for a better part of an hour and shared from their own experience, got very real about pain and loss and addictions and family troubles and their hopes and their dreams and these religious experiences and things that had stuck with them and shared from the sort of shapes of the, the turns um, and twists of their own stories, giving credit and glory for the ways that God showed up. And I can't tell you exactly what happened there. There were some other people in the room. You'd have to ask somebody like Gary George or Aubrey or somebody else what happened. But I bring this up this morning to say this. The story of Jesus, yes... It explodes the confines of a G-I-B-E kind of algorithm and, and storytelling apparatus. It is deeper, and it is more profound and inexhaustively beautiful in a way that is beyond words. And yet, one of the ways that we today encounter its power and its relevance and its continued call on our lives is in sharing and listening to one another's stories. The ups and downs, the good and ill and still in progress, imperfect 
aspects of our lives as we are following Jesus and declaring his lordship. And one of the ways that um, you can do this, this isn't in, in my notes, but it just so happens that what is sort of on the screen there sort of gives us the shape of baptism. And we, we're going to be doing baptism as a church. And what I just mean is that in baptism, there's essentially two movements. There's the first movement down into the water. Some of you are remembering your own baptisms and where it was, and I encourage you to do that. Others of you are, are, need a little explanation. So the first movement of baptism is always down into the water, down with part of myself. Down with my regrets, down with my uh, commitments to other allegiances, down with this thing that weighs um, me back, down with all of that, and then bursting up with new life, identifying with the risen Christ, up to new hope and to possibility. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is we're going to be offering an opportunity to pair together these two things by which I, I encourage us we can identify with the V-shaped trajectory of Christ and lend our credibility and voice to it. The first is through our actions. In baptism, you take an action. The other thing is with our words. In baptism, the way that we do it here, you tell your story, and you get to listen to other people's stories and how we're identifying with it. So I encourage you, if you have not been baptized yet, to really think about it. If you have been baptized, to try and imagine in your own life, how, where do you chart your own struggles? Where are you trusting that in Christ's downward trajectory of service and of humility and of emptying ourselves, meaning spending our time and energy for the sake of others, how are you trusting that Jesus will fill you? I'll close with this. I think every tongue will confess in the end not only to show Christ's ultimate victory over any would-be rivals, but I think that every tongue in the end confesses who Jesus is because it takes every perspective and every story and every voice to even begin to do justice to the essential claim of our faith that Jesus is